psalm that Jesus sang, one of the last psalms that he sang before his death. And so keep that in mind as we read these words out loud together. So if you would, please take your copy of God's word, turn to Psalm 118, beginning in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifices with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The, well, the word of the Lord. This, thanks, this is the word of the Lord. Always want to do the Presbyterian thing, you know. Um, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we are reminded of how steadfast you are. How your faithfulness endures forever and that our response to this is joy. Lord, let us see what it means to have joy in you this day. Let us see that you, Lord Jesus, are the culminating singer of this psalm. So let us look to you and you alone to give us these answers, to give us this truth this day. We ask this in your name. Amen. So I was with my wife recently, and we were driving uh, through Midtown. And when we first lived 
in Memphis. Uh, we lived in an old apartment complex called Georgian Woods. It is such a joy to have lived there. Um, and, I was, and I was driving there, and I'm, and I'm telling my wife, man, those were the days, right? Those were the days that we could, we just, we love Georgian Woods, don't we? And she was like, Zach, that place was awful. <laughs> um, we, we found a rat in our toilet. We had a part of our ceiling fall in. Um, you know, not to mention we were broke. I mean, why were those the days? Um, we, we tend to do that, that the past, it affects our perspective of joy. And when we're stuck in the past, we can actually become, we had this wistful nostalgia. And I think as I think back on our early days, it brings me joy. But we'll come back to that in a second. I've been trying to think of ways to define joy. And joy is just a word that is just too big for any definition. Um, and I feel like you have to be very poetic and artistic to define the word accurately. So the first thing we need to approach is, what are the circumstances of joy? What are the places, where are the places that we find it? And I realize that one of the places that you find it is on YouTube videos of troops coming home to their families. Um, there's this compilation video of troops coming home with like a Celine Dion song playing in the background. Yesterday I was watching it and I was, I was bawling. I didn't want my wife to see it. But uh, it's this 10-minute long video of fathers just greeting their children and children being utterly surprised and shocked. And what do they do? They just embrace their father and they hold each other for a very long time. And you find that there's joy in those videos because it's the world being made right again. Joy is what you feel when things are the way they're supposed to be. But the psalmist here does not stay stuck in the past. He, he's not going to tell us, hey, go back to the good times. He's not going to say, hey, this is just a distraction. He's not giving us a distraction. He is actually giving us the answer for how we can have joy. And, and the answer to that is in the text. It is in a faithful, steadfast God. So this is a joy that is not naively optimistic. It's not detached from the world. And what I want us to see is that there is this temporal aspect of looking back and, and looking forward. He's actually couching joy in this time continuum of, of looking back and looking forward. And so the root of joy is living with a broader perspective than what is urgent and is right in front of you. Having this capacity to look back and, and to see how God has been faithful to us. But it's also moving forward and seeing how he is continuing to be faithful to us. And this actually allows us to consider how he is faithful to us today, here in this moment, as we sit in this fellowship hall. Because it's the faithfulness of God that is the true source of joy. So I'm going to expand this in three ways. First, the faithfulness of God uh, brings us to the deliverance from the, deliverance from the past. 
Secondly, it gives us confidence in the future. And then thirdly, it gives us assurance of joy today. First, deliverance from the past. I heard today on NPR uh, when I was driving to church a woman talking about a woman talking about how to gather meaningfully after the pandemic. And she was giving all these kinds of tips for how to do so. Uh, one of those tips for having a, me- a meaningful gathering is, she, she says, to celebrate something specific. Provide specificity. And this is exactly what the psalmist is doing. David, or whoever the author is, maybe a Davidic king, is gathering his covenant people together to go and worship God in the sanctuary. And he's calling this meeting, and he's actually going to deliver a testimony. He actually says, because the Lord delivered me, and he's actually saying, we can have hope. This is my true joy, so Israel, this is your joy. God's commitment to his people does not change. And he says in verses 5 through 7, he says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look and triumph on those who hate me. He is connecting... uh, this story to his own experience. It's almost as if the psalmist were to get up here today and he wouldn't, he wouldn't have a Bible in front of him. He would just be giving his testimony. Now, we don't know what the distress was. We don't really know any specific details, but we do know this. He was in a desperate situation. So desperate, in fact, he says later on, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. And he's connecting it to the past, but he's also saying, people, you have been delivered by the Lord. He's connecting back to the story of Exodus when the people were delivered out of bondage from slavery with the Egyptians. And he is saying, not only is this part of your corporate identity, which deserves praise, but it is actually part of your personal experience, just like my own. So here's the point. Joy is not ephemeral. It's not temporary. Real joy, as the Bible describes it, is not determined or rooted in your immediate set of circumstances. That's what we all want to be rooted. We want it to be rooted in that because we all want to be in control. We want to manage everything. And we think if we manage everything, we have control over our lives, and that's going to be true joy. But it's not set by specific circumstances. I mean, we would be terrorized all of the time if that were the case. It's, it's not rooted in immediate circumstances. The Israelites are engaged in reflecting back on this great deliverance of God's people. They are engaged in a deeply necessary practice for looking back. In other words, they are practicing perspective. They are practicing perspective. What would happen if you only lived in the here and now? I mean, you parents would be terrified. Or you'd be like, why did I have kids again? (laughs) Or if if you lived in the here and now, 
as husbands and wives, you would be saying, why am I married to this person again? We would be terrified all of the time. I love the movie Memento. Uh, It's directed by Christopher Nolan. The movie is really interesting. It's about a guy who has no short-term memory. And the movie is through his perspective. You're engaging this story where you know nothing that happens beforehand. And it's an interesting insight into his life without being attached to a story. Because what happens is that he feels urgent. He feels like he has to always be doing something. And he's, and he's doing this really important task, but he doesn't even really know why he's doing it. And he's at the mercy of everyone else's opinions on reality because he can't remember who he is or where he is. So he's busy. He's accomplishing a lot. He's trying to uncover this, this case that he's trying to figure out in the movie, but he's completely lost. And it's because he has no idea what his history is. He hasn't remembered. That's life. It's like my little sister who is nine. When my parents promise her something good, every year my sister is frantic that somehow Christmas will be canceled. (laughs) And my parents joke with her about it. Um, and, And at the end of it, we end up saying, Ella, you remember We had Christmas last year. What makes you think we're going to cancel it this year? We're having Christmas. We we tell her to remember the past work of her parents. Otherwise, she'll lose it. In a lot of ways, we feel like we're people without stories. And we get lost and we don't remember. And in a lot of ways, it's because we feel like these people who are lost. We have... Short, no short-term memory, or no long-term memory for that matter. We're living in the daily grind of life. And we, we like to distract ourselves to not remember. We want to be distracted by the immediate set of circumstances. And when we do that, we start making broad-sweeping opinions about all of reality by only looking at those circumstances. God doesn't love me. God is not good. I'm falling apart. I'm going to fail. And there is no joy in that. That is not how life was intended to be. Joy is full of stories. Telling stories is one of the most important aspects of joy. Remembering good things is a great thing. The Israelites are remembering his steadfast love endures forever. They repeat it. The whole people of God, Israel, the the priest, and those who are outside who believe in God are repeating this same story of deliverance. I mean, when I go back home and see my college friends, what do we do? Um, We just say, do you remember when? We tell stories. And we laugh, and we start crying, and it's a blast. (laughs) The psalmist is saying it is so good to remember. He's reminding the people, remember the Lord's love. Not only how he delivered you out of bondage, but how he brought you to himself. That he actually brought you through those desolate places of life. He brought you through the wilderness and he has brought you into his, to the people of God as a covenant people of God. 
Joy has history attached to it. Remember the recent past, but also remember the distant past. You need to remember when grace was so sweet to you when you got it. When you were convicted of sin and Jesus' words of healing, of forgiveness, broke into your heart. And there was absolute healing. Remember that. When we remember those times, retell those stories, it bears repeating because those stories will get you through the trivial times. It'll get you through times when um, you didn't get into the school that you wanted or a roommate actually had a falling out with you or it'll also get you through dark times, death, addiction, depression. So we have to make a practice of remembering Because joy comes not just from remembering. If all we did was remember, then it would become wistful nostalgia. So there's actually more to this. It's not just by remembering that he delivered us, but how he is going to continue to to deliver us. And so the faithfulness of God actually secondly grounds our joy and confidence of the future. There is this present and forward-looking aspect to his confidence the Lord had shown himself to be faithful to, pro- uh, to the promise of delivering his people, but also delivering the psalmist. Look with me at verse 17 again. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on all those who hate me. There's this forward-looking aspect. I shall look in triumph one day over those who reject me. That he is actually saying, my life is going to be preserved. And we don't have time to get into it, but preserved even from the nations, from their rejection, as they surround him like bees. Look, at, look with me at verse 14. He says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Uh, the, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The song that he sings in this context is a victory song. It's, this, this language actually uses this kind of military language, and it denotes this, denotes this power of saving. It's a saving act in how God has mightily worked through his people, how he has judgment on his adversaries, how he has helped his people in time of need. And the psalmist is reminding the people of God's faithfulness from this past deliverance, but he's also reminding them of this this present work that is in the future. He says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord. It is better to go to this Lord who is mighty and who actually will judge all of those who reject Israel. But we know this hasn't come to fruition. If you know uh, the, the story of Israel, that Israel was actually in captivity. They were in bondage by the Babylonians. Um, but we also know in Isaiah 39, if you were to go and take a look at that, that actually the Lord delivered them out of their bondage. So they're looking back, but they're also practicing perspective. Whenever you would have sang this song, you would have said, okay, yeah, God's delivered us here, and so sure enough, he's going to deliver us there. So 
they would be, they'd sing this song, this victory song. And it says they were glad songs. They were glad songs because they knew that they were going to come to be. And it gives this psalmist confidence. It gives him confidence that one day God as the mighty warrior will deliver his people. Here's the point. We can't just remember the past. Without certainty of the future, then the past is just nostalgia. We have to know that things will be good again. There there has to be this confidence about the future. Joy can be had in the present, and, and when we have this full perspective of the past and future, then we realize they're no longer bound to our present circumstances. The psalmist is saying, I know the Lord will take care of his people. I know that this is not all that there is. I know that the Lord, there is life, there is new life. And that this new life for us, friends, is culminated and found in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us a victory. He's talking about a victory over both sin and death. In the same passage where he taunts death, he says, Now that I am in Jesus, now, O death, where is your sting? He taunts death. Imagine the amount of confidence that you would have to have to taunt death. So that's what Paul does. Why? It's because he's in Jesus and the resurrection is his. That's the ultimate victory. That's Israel's ultimate hope. That's our hope. You know why the first Christians, both Peter and John, are persecuted in Acts 4? I encourage you to go look at it. It's not because they preach Jesus. It's because they preach the resurrection. And the reason why is, why is this? The reason why is because people who believe in the resurrection are terrifying. They're terrifying people. If the resurrection is yours with Jesus in the new heavens and new earth, two things will happen to you. You will become joyful and you will become fearless. If you rest in the resurrection, you will be filled with joy and, em- and empty of all fear. Because there is nothing more threatening to the status quo and to the power structures of this world, to the nations of this world who taunt and reject God when actually it's we're freed from death. We have to know the future and we have to know that that is the joy set before us. There's this old story that seminarians like to tell, which probably passed into legend now, um, I'm not sure, but it's, it's about seminary students sitting in the library one night debating aspects of the weird book of Revelation. And as they were working, there was this janitor um, that, that came along, and so one of the guys uh, arrogantly asked, hey, let's ask the janitor a really technical question. Um, so he, he, he comes up to the janitor and he says, hey, can you tell us what the book of Revelation means? And the janitor just looked at him and said, it means God wins. Um, Doing life, knowing that God wins, changes everything. It changes everything. 
It gives richer joy to the good things in this life, and it actually prevents the bad moments and the dark moments from overwhelming us. Because we know that in the bad moments and the dark moments, God wins. He wins, and that there's this victory. So many of us need to hear that tonight. Many of us have been battling with so, battling so long with addiction. That it seems like it's this never-ending cycle that surrounds you and dominates your life. Or you, you have this conflict with a coworker, at, and, and, and you have no idea what, how it's going to be resolved. Maybe you're the one that messed it up. How can I rectify it? Or maybe you're the, uh, on the verge of giving up on your marriage. Because it just, he just hasn't been present in all these years. And he's just clueless to what is going on in life. Maybe it's illness. Maybe it's loneliness. Relational or sexual brokenness. And applying it, or, or maybe it's applying for this job that you've been longing to get and you just can't have it. And maybe you think that the future is bleak and you would rather just distract yourself and numb you and numb yourself with pain. Listen to this, IPC. Jesus wins. Those things can't consume you because God and his faithfulness is all met in one place. That is what the psalm is actually pointing us towards. That is the glad song of salvation. He delivers us and we're to be looking forward to his faithfulness. But thirdly and lastly, we're not only are we to see his faithfulness from the past, and not only are we supposed to see his faithfulness in the future, but we are also, uh, we need to see his faithfulness in the present. The faithfulness of God assures us of joy today. And it assures us of joy in two ways. First, by his glory, and secondly, by his rejection. So look with me at verses 19 through 24. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord that this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So far in this song, uh, in this psalm, excuse me, the songs and shouts have gone from outside of the city. So the psalmist has brought in the people of God up to the gates. And as their leader, as the king um, of his people, he, he calls the people to enter. And each gate of the temple had its own name. Like the old city of Jerusalem that we have today, you, if you enter through it, you have the Jaffa Gate or you have the Damascus gate, or you have the lion's gate. There are all these different ways you can enter, not only into the city, but also into the temple. And the psalmist says, open to me the righteous gate. He chose that gate because he had done the right thing. He had trusted God through his ordeal. Remember Abraham. Abraham believed God, And God accredited his faith to him as righteousness. It is faith that we are made righteous. It is by faith that God himself accredits to us righteousness. Paul illustrates this for us 
in Romans. He says, for the promise, in Romans 4, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And Paul later says, but the words it was counted to him as righteousness were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. So our good and faithful God, through his death and resurrection, was a full payment for our sin. That actually, the king who had opened the gates, who went through the door of righteousness, is our king. He brings us into the temple to be in his presence, not based on our own merit, not based on what we did for ourselves, but he brings us in. And he calls us his own. Which means, friends, you have full access with God. In his glory. That by faith you are made righteous. But you are also given these amazing truths. You have been given justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. That these are not of your own doing, but they are of Christ. But here's the issue. I mean, that is glorious, and we love to proclaim those truths. But the psalmist says that the people of God and, and, and their king will be, will be rejected. He will be rejected. The psalmist likens this rejection to a cornerstone being thrown away. And he approaches this cornerstone, and he sees it as something that is vital for putting the two walls together. And the load that will be on that stone will be big. It will be dense. It will be massive, but it will be overlooked. The cornerstone is the large stone in the, in the temple's foundation. It, it's likened to be the most overlooked piece because it's the piece that connects all the pieces together. And it will be Overlooked. And the, the, the psalmist, the king, is actually saying, that is my experience. I have been rejected. I am like that cornerstone. And yet he can also say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Think back with me for a second. Uh, psalm 1-1, the very first psalm, which sets the entire focus of the psalms. What does it say? It, said, it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. Did you catch that? The one who can truly come to God's place and enter into this joyful worship of him is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. That very same law, that blessed man, he has to have moral standing with this law. He is the one that opens the gates. But now bring this back to Psalm 118. Who can walk through the gates? The man who loves the provision of the Lord in life and in death. He's the man who could truly say, blessed is the man who comes in the name of the Lord. Who is that person? People who have entered into the, the book of Psalms for thousands of years, you would think they'd have the right heart, but they would also say after reading the Psalms, I'm not that person. 
But there was one who walked through the gates 2,000 years ago of Jerusalem on Passover week. And the crowds gathered around him and they said, blessed are the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They actually said, save us, Hosanna. Save us, we pray, Hosanna. At the beginning of the week, they were singing Psalm 118. They were welcoming the king in to the gates. They were using words that their parents had taught them in Saturday school as good and faithful Jewish people. And, and that's fascinating to me. And then when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he became the culminating singer of the psalm. And yet his spiritual enemies were buzzing around him like bees, setting a trap for him. And they were crackling a fire around him, waiting to just burn him. And they eventually did. He comforted them with courage despite their opposition. And he, he even would care for them as their crackling became the crackling of whips as their buzzing became stings to his body. And with truth and love, he would say, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He would say, I am the cornerstone. I am the one that would, be, that would suffer. I am the one that will be rejected. And actually, friends, if you follow after a king like that, you'll be rejected too. This week, I really encourage you to read uh, through 1 Peter. If you want to understand why we suffer, Paul was writing to an audience who was going through sufficient uh, struggle, trials, and hardships. And because of their profession and faith in Christ, he tells them, even though you're going through this fiery ordeal and this trial, he says, you're not just suffering but you are suffering in Christ. He actually says to rejoice because you share in the sufferings of Christ. He tells us first, don't be surprised because we are called to expect this. There is nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with your faith. There's nothing wrong with your God. He tells us ironically to rejoice because we share in those sufferings. And we don't actually think of joy connected with suffering, do we? How is suffering going to bring joy? You see, Peter doesn't talk about suffering in general. Peter doesn't talk about suffering as just this thing that's kind of abstract. It's real suffering. It's real persecution. But he says, sharing in Jesus' suffering is the source of our joy. Because it is through Jesus' suffering we actually see God most faithful to us. And the question we need to wrestle with is this. How much do we really want to know Jesus? When we think about it, we really want to share in the glory of Christ, as we mentioned before. But who in the world wants to share in his sufferings? And we think of these great blessings, and yet we don't even think about his suffering. As an RTS professor, Peter Lee, he would say, if you, have one that is the, if you have one that is his glory without the other, which is his suffering, then you probably don't know Jesus. Isn't that the joy of the Christian life? Isn't that the joy that is unspeakable? 
And many of us need to hear that today because Jesus was rejected, despised, forsaken. He, he endured and he was faithful and he counted it all joy for you. The author of Hebrews says this, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How in the world could Jesus have had joy going to the place of ultimate rejection? How is that? It's because he looked over the shoulder of shame and the shoulder of rejection, and he saw you. He saw me. You suffer the loss of a husband or a wife, a father or a mother, and you are grieving through that pain. Jesus goes before you with joy, and he sees you. You are fired for something that was outside of your control, and you don't know how to grapple with the effects of it. Jesus goes before you with joy, and he sees you. You were rejected by a friend who refuses to speak to you, and maybe it was your fault, or maybe it's something that you just can't fix. Jesus goes before you with joy, and he sees you. Jesus, with the joy set before him, endured the cross for you. So when we experience this rejection and suffering, it is this vehicle for how God is going to transform the world. It is the ultimate story that we retell over and over again. It is the song that we continue to sing over and over as we look to our king who is the culminating singer of the song. He sees you and me and says, joy. I'll close with this. As you remember, I said those were the days looking back at Georgian Woods and looking back at all the hard times early in marriage as, as a young, broke, 20-something-year-old. Um, those were joyous times. And I think it was joyous because what made it worth it was the joy of my wife, how faithful she was in modeling Jesus for me how she pointed me back to his deliverance, how she pointed me back time and time again to his future promises, how she continued to show me that he is sufficiently powerful in the present moment. It was her and her faithfulness where I actually saw joy. I ask you this tonight, how much more is the joy of your father in heaven who is faithful to you in ways that you don't even know, you don't even see, through seasons of joy, through seasons of heartache, through unbearable pain in the present. We will look ahead by singing with our faithful Savior in the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever because his faithfulness is the source of our joy. And it's this story that is going to make everything right again. Amen. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we see that it was your son Jesus who sang this song, but yet it was your Lord Jesus who suffered this rejection. And Father, many of us are suffering rejection now, but one thing is true. You see us. 
You faithful, faithfully have gone before us. You have faithfully delivered us from our past, and you are continuing to deliver us here in the present. Give us this joy, God, that is only found in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.